Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke once more with Dr. Jordan Peterson. If you're not aware of Jordan Peterson, I don't know what you're doing yourself, he's on the news all the time. He's a professor of psychology, clinical psychologist, author of 12 Rules for Life, Antidote for Chaos and Beyond, you know, like all those books he's written. Now that Under the Skin is on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review there. It helps us and we'll read them out. If you'd like to listen to this podcast in its entirety and all my Under the Skins, which I consider to be like a university course in autodidactism, which I suppose is oxymoronic, but it's, this is the, yeah, the autodidactism Didact's University, I call this. Uh, then subscribe to Luminary on Apple. There's a holiday offer at the moment. You can get Luminary if you're in America for $23.99 for a year's worth of stuff. And if you're in the UK hole, <laughs> that's pretty funny, uh, you can pay $19.49 for a year of access. Although that year will not be $19.49, it'll be 2022 for a year worth of stuff. That's like that's that's the same amount of money as it would cost you to buy an M&M a day and push it into your bot bot as a merry, merry morning treat. Is that a good way of explaining no. it, Jen? Probably not. Imagine Jordan Pearson's listening to this. Isn't Sorry, Jordan. Oh, come on. No, he won't listen to this. That's another thing version. I was meant to do. I was meant to go and meet Jordan Pearson. I was meant to meet Dave Chappelle. I never go meet people. Uh, what's his name? He was going to come walk around the garden with me. Satish Kumar. Didn't do it. No time. But luckily, I am spending a lot of time looking at my children. All right. Uh, so in this bit of the conversation remember go and get that special offer because you can listen to this whole podcast you'll love it in this Jordan uh, the times what the times Jordan right I'm listening what, Jen what happens in this bit uh, you asked Jordan about <laughs> the times he was confronted by people in the media and when he felt attacked yeah no and and I was trying to say don't say you see their point, their of, point view? of view did he see their and point of view and then he was like of course and then he went on to talk about the importance of free speech and how it gives space for new ideas and that you can curtail it otherwise well you know I've got a lot of affection and love for Jordan Peterson I know he's a complex man and provokes a lot of complex feelings but I think he's a vital part of the ongoing public conversation at the moment so have a listen to this and see what you guys think trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right we're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss it doesn't look like an ideology what's beneath the surface of people we admire of the ideas that define our time the history we're told and welcome to Russell Brand under the skin like I can imagine a version of you when you become sort of when you be, you're open hearted. It's clear you're becoming more and more open hearted. It seems like that in a kind of almost spiritual or religious sort of way. I wonder how you might approach those people that no doubt had a bit of an axe to grind. I'm speaking in particular of your like the Helen Lewis conversation or the Channel Four one. You know, when you come against people that clearly have a little bit of a takedown mentality. Do you think yeah, it's that hard not to get defensive? Eh? Impossible. It's, if really I think people to, well, don't, it's not impossible, but it's hard. It's really hard. And um, the Helen Lewis interview in particular, uh, I was sitting in the room that she was in with her photographers. I, there was a photography session first, and it was icy cold in there in a psychological sense, in that icy cold manner that you get when you walk into a room and you know that there's something underneath the carpet, you know, and I'm very sensitive to that sort of thing. And so I was like a cat with my hair up already. By the time the interview started, I was also extremely tired at the time. And so I was much more defensive than I could have been optimally. And so, and, you know, that was partly also because in an interview like that, part of what's hoped for, I suppose, is that the person being so grilled will slip up in some, you know, remarkable manner that's instantly viral. And that redounds to the credit of the takedown artist and is like permanently 
well, it's a permanent stain on the reputation of the person so affected. And so, you know, it's a very fine line to walk. Do, do you think that that dynamic do exactly right? Does that dynamic mean to you that you that you feel find it's impossible to yield or be sympathetic or be open or loving? Because I've I've been in that situation. Well, it's harder for sure. You know, it's harder for sure to remember when you're being, let's say, attacked or when what the person assumes you think is being attacked and is projecting that on you, it's much harder to love your enemy under such circumstances. And you might even say, well, why should I even bother? You know, this person is, is trying to take me down. And so, you know, why should I care for them? And the reason for that is, well, do you really want enemies? And do you really want people to suffer more than they have to, including the people who think they're opposed to you? And if you have any sense, the answer to that is definitely no. And, you know, that's part of that no vindication issue as well. So you don't want that. You, you want to have a conversation. You want to get past the ideology to the person. And I did object to her at one point, the GQ interview, and said, you know, I'd rather talk to you than to this devil of ideology that's possessing you because you would be much more interesting than all this predictable verbal, uh, what would you call it, puppetry that you're manifesting. And, you know, she, well, that didn't work, and unfortunately. And that's partly my fault, you know, but but say la vie i'm doing my best but now that you're not say now we're in a different situation where i i suppose am inviting comment in some of the areas that might have been covered in those more combative situations but i don't i hope bear those biases certainly in the same way do you feel that underlying these attacks is there is something valid, truthful, and real in in the people that have made those of claims? Absolutely, absolutely. What I mean, is it? Oh, there's all sorts. Let's talk about the left in general. You know, I mean, well, we all are part of identity groups. So, the question about what role our group identity plays in our identity and what role respect for that should play in the polity at large. That's certainly something that's always open for discussion. I believe that the reason that free speech, for example, has to be the primary virtue, let's say, primary value, is because free speech is indistinguishable from thought. And thought is indistinguishable, especially thought done socially, which is more sophisticated thought because many brains are actually smarter than one plus we think in words. And so there's a huge social element to thought. And we don't only think in words. And so thought is the literally the process by which consciousness makes adjustments to our presumptions. And so since we're all error prone, no matter who we are, because the future is different than the past, then if we don't make free speech and the role consciousness plays in using that to adjust our presuppositions central, we all stagnate and things fall apart. And that's ancient wisdom, as well as I would say, modern clinical wisdom. I mean, I just went down to Bucknell University and did a talk on free speech as a precondition for mental and social health. And I picked that title very carefully. And, you know, one of the things that's quite striking about clinical practice in psychiatry and psychology, independent of the pure medical end, you know, the medication end, is that all the great clinicians, regardless of their school of thought, agreed that free speech accompanied by intense listening was psychologically and physiologically transformative. Well, okay, so what do you do about 
what do you do with with a discovery like that? Let's say, and I would say, well, if that's not a scientific discovery, it's very close to it. Depends on how scientific you think clinical practice is, and it's complex because it's it's kind of like engineering in that it's a practical discipline. It's not pure science, but still, that agreement across schools of psychotherapeutic endeavor is striking, and it's meaningful, and it's much in accordance with how we understand the function of the brain and its evolution as well, because we human beings are unique in that we produce abstracted representations of the world and our actions in the world. Those are stories, let's say, before we implement those in action. And so we can test out the utility and validity of the abstracted patterns and representations before we act them out and die because we're wrong. And so that's evolution. That's that's the taking of evolution to the next step. And I mean that technically, because the forces of selection operate at the level of abstraction for human beings. And you interfere with that when you interfere with free speech. And, you know, so let's give the devil his due. Well, what about words that hurt people's feelings? Isn't that bad? Well, yes, of course. Like who wants people's feelings hurt? But, but that's not a sophisticated argument because it doesn't take into account time frame. You know perfectly well that there are things you have to do right now that are difficult and, and challenging and, and even hurtful to yourself because of their stress that if you don't attend to will cause immense trouble and grief, not too much later. And we all know that all the time. And so the, the simple and unthinking compassion that drives statements like, well, don't be judgmental, which is also something worth looking into in great depth, just is no, it's just nowhere near developed enough to to be of practical utility, and it actually interferes with, with what's higher than that. So, you know, and, and I would say as well, clinically, that that was first observed in some sense by Freud with his emphasis on the catastrophic consequences of the Oedipal family, where the desire to protect based on compassion and also fear to some degree, fear particularly on the mother's part of being alone, meant an all-embracing compassion that was so great that it interfered with the development of independence. And so that becomes, well, pathological in its own right. And there's very little philosophical, there's very little observation on the radical compassionate left of the fact that compassion itself is by no means the only virtue or the highest virtue, virtue or that it doesn't have a devouring and pathological side, which it absolutely does. So, and that doesn't mean compassion is without merit. Obviously, it's, obviously, it's, it has its merit, but it has to be placed properly. If you're enjoying this conversation, join me over at Lumina and Apple Podcasts for the rest of our discussion and for all the latest episodes of Under the Skin from Luminary.